Hey folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. This is Thursday, July the 19th, and this is episode 945 of the Survival Podcast. And I have one of my favorite kinds of episodes to do for you today. Today's show is going to be called Weeds That Aren't Weeds and Under Other Unusual Edibles. And I have a huge list of plants. The first list is... Uh, Fairly long, and it's uh, it's a list that most people would consider weeds, that I don't consider weeds. It was sparked off by something that happened on Facebook I'll tell you about when I get started. The second list is a bunch of stuff that is not usually considered weeds, but very few people are growing, and I think more people should be growing, and I'll tell you why and what role each of these things fill. Some of them are mainly as edibles, some are more for fodder, um, but most of them are things you won't find in most backyards. Uh, one you might find in quite a few now, but I'm not really sure that you'll find these as average things people are growing. And uh, Anyway, I like shows like this, and I, I'll promise you this. Even if you've listened to a lot of my shows, I'll bet you I give you one or two today that you go, wow, I didn't, I didn't know anything about that. I didn't know you could eat that, or I didn't know that existed, or I didn't know you could propagate things that way. I'm going to give you a way to uh, propagate things today that uh, is really cool. Very old technique, uh, but it's uh, a modern version of doing it. It's going to be a good show. Before I get into that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Western Botanicals. I grow stuff. That's why we're going to have a show today about growing stuff. I wildcraft. I go out and I find weeds and wild herbs and stuff like that, and I believe that herbal uh, herbal remedies, and I almost call it more like herbal tonic than herbal medicine, because I believe if we're using herbals right, it's not an acute response issue. It's that we're making sure that we're using these things in our diet all the time, and we're tonifying our body. And then there are acute situations, like you know your back hurts, you've got inflammation, and you want to bring the inflammation down without using you know even over the counter like NASEDs or whatever. They can be damaging to the liver and kidneys. There's ways to do that, like turmeric, for example. And how do I know that turmeric makes a good anti-inflammatory? Because of Dr. Kyle Christensen over at Western Botanicals. And whenever I need something and I don't have it in my backyard or in my you know my counter my cupboard, or I can't go wildcraft it myself. I go to Western Botanicals, and every single time I'm looking for something, they have it. And when I go, I've got an issue, and I really don't know what to do about this. I pick the phone up, or if my wife has an issue, she picks the phone up. We talk to Dr. Christensen or his team, and uh, they get back to us with recommendations, and they're always very, very helpful. And whatever we need, they've got. And I suggest that you check them out today and start using herbals in your own life and they're at westernbotanicals.com. They also have a great program. It's 50 bucks a year, and then you get 25% off everything that they sell. And if you use a lot of herbals, it pays for itself. But if you are a member of the Support Brigade, you get your first year free. And after your first year, if you want to keep having the, uh, the, the, the discount program, you pay 25 bucks for it instead of 50 That's an awesome deal, and it's a big way that they help support the show. And in effect, they pay for your first year of Member Support Brigade with that one benefit. So they're a big-time, long-term supporter, and they'll take care of you, and they'll help you, and they really care about you. And that's why I'm glad to have them as a sponsor. Next up today is Sawtooth Tactical. Everything you need to live that tactical lifestyle, check them out today. They're at sawtoothtactical.com. They do give a discount to MSB members. You'll find that on the benefits page of your MSB. 
You can find SOE Tactical Gear there. You can find the cool-ass Titanium Sport there. Uh, you can find Magpul Magazines. You can find everything else in between. If you want to beef up your tactical lifestyle, check them out today. And They're called Sawtooth Tactical because they're veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and in the wilds of the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. So good quality American company run by veterans that supports the show, and you can support uh, our show, and you can support them by checking out their site and see if there's anything you need there. Uh, or the next time you're in the market for something tactical, check out SawtoothTactical.com. Best way to make sure you're dealing with Sawtooth Tactical, Western Botanicals, or any of our sponsors, go to our site first. Click on their banners in the right-hand margin. That way you know you're not dealing with a brand pirate. They're out there, folks. Uh, also remember, TSPCopper.com. You can go there, find some really cool copper stuff. I'll leave it at that today. Self-Reliance Expo next week, Friday and Saturday, 27 and 28. Please come on by and meet me. Please, if you can, come early Saturday morning to the TSP meetup. I'll be putting out some announcements over the next week to make sure that everybody knows how to do this. But we have a special uh, TSP-only meetup, and you guys get in a half hour early and meet a, a really great group of people, Jackie Clay, Marjorie Wildcraft, me, each other. I mean, that's cool in and of itself. Get the best seats for my presentation for the keynote opening speech. I set that up just for you guys. Uh, you'll be able to find either uh, Ron or Scott. They'll be assigned for TSP Meetup out wherever the ticket sales are. And uh, just go up there and meet them in a group. And at, uh, in a half hour before the doors open for everybody else, they will escort you in VIP style. Uh, so go on and, uh, and get on the Facebook page and register that you're coming so we have a good head count as well. All right. I'm going to leave MSB out today. I want to get into the main topic of today's show. I'm going to sneak something in on you, though. Here it comes. Uh, because I know a lot of you guys skipped the, uh, the intro segment, and I really want to, uh, to make sure that everybody out there hears this today in case you qualify as this. I am looking for a landowner in the state of Texas. Now, you guys look out, know I'm looking to buy land. That's not what this is directly related to. I'm looking for somebody with 100 acres or more of land that you own, not that you know about, not that somebody might know somebody that knows a cousin that knows an uncle, that you are the landowner. That's the person I'm looking for, 100 acres or more of land that you own within, let's say, a two-ish hour radius around Dallas-Fort Worth. That could be two hours out on the Fort Worth side, two hours out on the East Texas side, two hours south, somewhere between like Austin and, and, and the Dallas-Fort Worth area, anything like that. If you have more than 100 acres of land in that kind of two-hour circle around the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and you are interested in talking to me about a project, and that's all I can say, email me, jack at com. Put land, just land in the subject line, and I will get back with you, and I will tell you what we're interested in. If you do not own land and you want to know what we're interested in, don't email me. I'm not going to tell you, okay? Only landowners. Don't email me and tell me you have land just to find out. Oh, no. Don't mess with me, folks. Uh, this is a cool thing, but that's what I need. Landowners only. Uh, get in touch with me and we'll talk. All right. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Now, the way this kind of got kicked off is uh, a couple days ago, I did one of my things where I post a plant to Facebook and I give people clues and say, what is it? Right? And um, I posted in the first sentence of the description, this is not, and not was in all capital letters, Lamb's Quarters. But it is a member of the Goosefoot family, like its cousin, 
and I uh, gave some information about it. It's, it's grown a lot for its greens. They taste better than a lamb's quarter, especially when young. It's also grown for its seed heads. They're kind of like a cross between broccoli and asparagus, sort of, in a kind of way. It's from Central America. Well, like half the people said, it's lamb's quarters, and I have it all over my house. No, no, see, not lamb. But that's okay. I mean, because some people don't read descriptions and all, and I'm not coming down on anybody. But what got into me, what got into me and just kind of dug me the wrong way was the constant use of a single word. Weed. Those are weeds. Those are weeds. It looks like the weeds that grow all over the place. They grow five feet. They're weeds, 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 weeds. And you go, what makes this a weed? And the response is, well, it grows everywhere by itself. So that makes it a weed. So is an oak tree a weed? So is a, I don't know, a birch tree a weed? They grow everywhere by themselves. Uh, what, what makes a weed a weed? And to me, a true weed... Is something that grows, occupies space, ties up resources, and serves no real purpose to my goals. Okay, And that means there's actually very few weeds. My wife loves the freaking weed eater. I hate the weed eater. She's always trying to go around my garden with the weed eater and cut back the grass and stuff that's growing. I'm like, leave it alone. Leave it alone. It bugs me. I'm like, I don't care if it bugs you. You can go weed eat everything else. Stay away from my garden with the freaking weed eater. One, you're going to damage my plants that are coming in between the rows, and I'm letting them do it, so don't mess with it. And two, that's not a weed. That's a plant. I don't even believe in weeds. Now, there are things that behave in a weed-like manner. It's not to me so much the plant itself, but its behavior or a lack of ability to control it. So is kudzu a weed? Well, the way that it's taken over parts of the South and literally killed everything else around it, yeah, it's it's, it's weed-like behavior. Yet in its native habitat where it's fed to hogs and it's part of its native landscape, it's certainly not a weed there. It's considered a very viable source of food. If the city of Atlanta, which is being consumed by kudzu, would go into the goat business, um, you could have some of the most sweet goat milk and uh, sweet goat meat on the planet Earth uh, just letting those things continuously eat kudzu. And, and they'll never run out, and you'll never be done, but you can keep doing it. And there's a tremendous opportunity there to be harvested. So even in that situation, we can turn things around. But I'll acknowledge there's certain things that are weed-like. You know, if it's something that forms a mat in your garden bed that suppresses the growth of the plants you want, it's behaving weed-like. We always have to ask ourselves why it's there, though. But the reality is most of the stuff that people consider weeds actually are quite beneficial. They're beneficial for livestock. They're beneficial as predator habitat. And most of them are actually beneficial for us to eat. And kind of starting out with the first one, and this is one that most of you guys that do a little bit of wild crafting even are going to be familiar with, lamb's quarters, which looks an awful lot like wazantle, uh, which you, I'll tell you how you spell wazantle when we get there, but you pronounce it wazantle. Um, but lamb's quarters can grow little bitty plants or it can grow plants that are like six feet freaking tall. And people look at that and go, well, that's a weed. I mean, look at it. It's big. It's bushy. It grows everywhere. It has a billion seeds. The seeds go everywhere. It comes back every year. It's incredibly vigorous. How is it not a weed? Well, have you ever gone out to it, pulled a bunch of leaves off of it, taken them home, heated up some olive oil, a little bit of garlic, a little bit of salt, a little bit of pepper, and just braised it till it's it's dark green? And served the greens maybe with, uh, you know, as a side dish with, uh, with, with some kind of like, you know, pork or steak or something like that. No. Well, then you wouldn't call it a weed if you did that. 
Especially if you chopped up some fresh jalapeno and a little bit of scallion or green onion with it when you sautéed it, you might actually really, really like it. Now, if you just start picking the leaves off and eating them, they're kind of blandish by themselves, and they're thin, and they don't have a lot of uh, juiciness to them. But if you pick a whole bunch of them and mix them in with a bunch of other greens in a salad, all of a sudden their flavor comes out, and they're really good. So you've got a tree, uh, you know, an annual tree, to, if you want to look at it that way, in a lamb's court. It grows four, five, six foot tall with leaves that can either be eaten fresh as part of a green salad or sautéed like a summer spinach, and it grows all by itself, and you don't have to do anything except go out and harvest it. Okay? Hmm. That's a weed? You, you guys get what I'm saying there? Okay, now, let's say that you have something like goats, and you have this area that's full of lamb's quarters. Well, every day you can walk over there with a knife or a machete or a, a, a sicket or a sickle or whatever you use, and chop a few of them down and bring them to your goats, and they'll go ape shit over them, and it's high in protein. As it starts to form seed heads, it's incredibly great chicken fodder. Chicken will love to pick those little seeds. And you can get, like, one plant will produce, I filled up a half of a gallon Ziploc bag from the seed off of one lamb's quarter plant. It's a grain, folks. It's high in protein. It's gluten-free. If you want to... If you want to like increase the protein content of things like bread, I'm not a big bread eater anymore, but if you take, let's say, and add a couple scoops of lamb squatter seeds to the flour you're making bread with, you've just beefed the protein up. So now we've got a seed-slash-grain crop that's easy to harvest, that doesn't need to be threshed, that can be given to our, our, our birds, like chickens, or if we do pigeons, they'll, they'll eat it, or we can use it ourselves to beef, protein, beef up protein content, in a situation where maybe we're having to rely on th more things like bread. Um, it's actually really good tasting, the seeds of lamb's quarters. It, it's kind of crazy. You let them go till they're completely dry, and you get a five-gallon bucket. You cut the seeds heads off. You just beat the crap out of it side by side in the bucket, run your fingers through it, and you know don't worry about getting them all, and just keep doing that. And You'd be shocked with just a few plants how quick you could fill up half a five-gallon bucket of this stuff. But it's a weed. It's a weed because we don't understand it. So I've got a protein source. I've got wildlife fodder both for birds and for uh, ruminants. Cattle love to eat it too, by the way. I've got a green source for humans both as a cooked green and as a salad green, and I don't have to do anything, and yet it's a weed. Well, sometimes they get as big around as your wet wrist. Well, oak trees get as big around as a house. Doesn't make them a weed, does it? Now, if I'm trying to grow, I understand, if I'm trying to grow something else there, and lamb's quarters are everywhere, but they're actually really easy to control. And when they're little bitty and they just start growing, they're great salad greens. The smaller they are, the sweeter they are. So I don't look, you know, I'm a guy that's going out and planting lamb's quarters while other people are trying to get rid of them. Because I understand all the functions this one plant serves. Um, and it, it also has, with the stalks, a lot of organic matter. So that once the leaves are stripped off, Uh, it could be, you know, used as compost or shredded for additional beefing up organic matter if you're not feeding it to goats or hogs or something like that, which will be happy to eat it. So I don't see it as a weed. I see it as a cultivated crop. And over in the east, like in India and what have you, it is cultivated to be used as a vegetable, exactly the way I've just described it. Which brings me to the little picture that I posted of the next plant. It's called Wozantle. And you spell it H U. Uh, A-U-Z-O-N-T-L-E. Again, H-U-A-U-Z-O-N-T-L-E. Wazantle, though, is pronounced. It's uh, native to Central and South America. 
When it's young, it looks almost exactly like lamb's quarters, but sometimes it gets a lot more red in the leaf or more pink in the leaf. Some varieties grow almost almost true red, and some grow green with little faded parts of pink, but it's all the same stuff. Just like lamb's quarters, it's a member of what's called the goosefoot family. When it's young, its leaves are like lamb's quarters times five in quality. They're sweeter. There's a little more body to them. They're a little bit, they've got a little bit more of a juicy character. Lamb's quarter leaf is very, very thin, almost like paper, uh, where this stuff is a little bit beefier. As it gets bigger, though, unlike lamb's quarter, which you can pretty much eat the leaves off it right up until it's ready to die. Uh, and they'll taste pretty much the same. They're a little sweeter when the plant's young, but, uh, and, and, you know, lamb's quarters, the way you really want to use them when they're young is let them grow about, oh, eight, ten inches tall and just cut them off at the ground and then just saute the whole plant like that is a, is a good way to use them as well before the stems get too tough. Um, but with, uh, with Wazantle, once they get over about the foot tall, the leaves start to lose some of that sweetness and some of that, flavor and what have you and as it gets really big toward maturity they become bitter so this is something you use the leaves on while the plant's young and they're awesome it's again like better than lamb's quarters right but when they grow and they put these seed heads on their seed heads kind of look like elongated broccoli and they have a flavor somewhere between broccoli and asparagus without that i don't know that that part of asparagus that a lot of people don't like like if you like broccoli It doesn't really taste like broccoli. It's kind of like a grassy. It's, it, 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 it is wasantly. It, it, it's, it's its own thing. And a traditional method is to batter it and fry it. And then basically they eat the, you leave the stick in the middle and you just kind of pull the buds off of the stem because the stem gets tough. And uh, it's, it, it's actually being grown like crazy right now in Los Angeles by a lot of Mexican immigrants. It's a big garden plant there. I'm growing it too. You know why? Because it kicks ass. It is a native plant to North, you know, to, 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 to actually, you would say, uh, to North America. Central America is part of the North American continent. It doesn't go as invasive as things like lamb's quarters might. I sure wish it would. And if it will, I'm not going to complain about it. And it gives me a leaf crop and a seed crop in a different way. Uh, and it's very, very hardy. It grows very, very well. And it's a beautiful plant as far as I'm concerned. It's not a weed. So there's another one for you guys today. Now, another plant... That you, you almost have to say, well, this is, has to be a weed. It has to be a weed because it says weed in the name. Chickweed. Um, I think chickweed is one of the greatest gifts that we have on planet Earth. And I'll tell you a couple of reasons why. Number one, it grows all by itself once again. It's a good green in salads, and it's a good green sautéed with other greens or as part of a stir-fry. It has kind of a little corn silkish like flavor to it, but I don't really enjoy corn silk, but I enjoy chickweed, so that's the only thing I can compare it to for you. But the beautiful thing about chickweed is it does its thing early in the year, very, very early when it's still very, very cold out, when you're still getting light frost and whatever. It goes to seed, it reseeds itself, and then it goes away. Once it gets hot out, your chickweed it just disappears, and you think it's gone forever. And the next season it comes back over and over again. So... If you encourage chickweed to grow in gardens that you plant later in the season, that you plant your summer vegetables into, by the time you plant your summer vegetables in there, it's going away anyway. It's already reseeded itself, and the mat that it forms has helped to keep down other things that you might call a weed. So chickweed. And I've actually you know, made sure that there's chickweed. there was no chickweed on my property in, in, in Arkansas. So what I did... 
is, is the chickweed was getting uh, to the point where it was going to seed at my place in Texas. I would take the, the plants themselves and I just threw them in the, uh, the, the potted trees that I was taking up to the Arkansas property. And then they just sat in there over winter and then the chickweed came up inside the pots. And then I was able to just take the chickweed that was going to seed out of the pots and spread it around the property. And now there's chickweed on the property. And wherever I planted the trees, the chickweed comes up around the trees. But again, comes up in the spring, goes away in the summer, comes back in the spring again. I mean, what more can you ask for? And then people will break their necks trying to grow some kind of exotic Asian green or something like that. And here's this little green that just comes back year after year after year. It's, it's, it, it's not something that really com even competes with anything else. It just doesn't have the staying power through the duration of the season to compete with the other things that you're trying to grow or even your lawn. It causes no problems. It's highly edible. Your chickens would love it. Uh, any of your ruminants would love it. You can eat it. Folks, it's not a weed. The next one. The next one is one that you very seldom have to plant. But if you don't have any, it can be an indicator that somebody did something bad to your land before you got there. Uh, and it's easy to encourage if it's not something really, really wrong. When you look at a lawn and it's completely green and there's not a weed in it, odds are that somebody sprayed it with some kind of nastiness to kill the broadleaf weeds, and you won't find the hated dandelion. I love the dandelion. I think the dandelion is the most underrated plant by the ignorant public on planet Earth. If you're trying to get rid of dandelions... You're doing it wrong. I mean, I'm sorry to put it that way, but the dandelion is such a powerhouse. I can make herbal extract from the dandelion leaf, root, and flower that uh, does so many good things for the body. I don't even have time to list them all today. You can look it up if you want to know all the great things that dandelion can be used for. I can take dandelion root. I can dry it out. I can roast it. I can grind it up. And I can make a coffee substitute. If I add another thing that I'm going to get to in a second called chicory, and I do both, I get a reasonably decent substitute for coffee. In fact, I'll give you right now, kind of skipping ahead to the chicory, this is actually a really good coffee substitute uh, as far as taste. It's not going to give you the caffeine. Uh, one part dandelion, dried roasted dandelion root, one part dry roasted chicory root, and one part dry roasted ground okra seeds. That'll actually make a reasonable coffee substitute. It's uh, something that was done a lot as uh, what they call ersatz uh, during the Confederacy, uh, during the Civil War when supplies were uh, low. But anyway, let me get back to dandelion. So I've got, I've got a root that I can do that with. I've got a green that I can eat. Most people say dandelion greens are bitter. Let me tell you what makes dandelion greens bitter is solar exposure. The more sun they get, the more bitter they become. And the older and larger they get, the more, uh, the more bitter they become. If you were to do something in a patch of dandelion, like just set up maybe a six foot by six foot frame coated with shade cloth and put it on four posts and set it over there in your spring and shaded that area and took all your dandelion greens for that area, it would reduce the bitterness amazingly. If you boil dandelion greens and do them like a boiled green, kind of like you would cook collards, and then remove the water after they boil for a little bit and then add a little bit more and, and finish them off, that takes a lot of the bitterness out of them. So there's that. But again, a lot of our greens that have this bitterness to it, that bitterness actually serves a, a, a really great health purpose. And, and it's odd 
But if you take that bitter green and put it with other greens in a salad, so in the spring we're probably growing spinach, we have dandelion, we have chickweed, and maybe we're growing a little bit of lettuce, leaf lettuce, and if we put all of them together in a salad, mix that up, dress it with a little bit of dressing, all of a sudden the bitterness just doesn't seem to be that apparent to us anymore. Uh, we throw some chicory leaf in there too, and chicory can have a little bit of a bitterness quality, but all of a sudden you put these greens together, they stop having so much of that overpowering bitterness. And if they're sitting next to a piece of ribeye steak and you have that fat to cut through some of the tannic uh, c components there, all of a sudden everything starts to come together. It's almost like we were designed to eat a highly varied diet instead of one or two things. It's almost like that was the plan or something like that. So there you go on the dandelions. So I don't know that I plant a lot of dandelions, but I certainly encourage them. And for beekeepers, they're a blessing because they bloom before everything else does. And I would be completely remiss... If I didn't point out that when they're all in bloom, you can go out there and pick hundreds and hundreds of dandelion flowers and you can make an amazing table wine using dandelion blossom. It's just awesome. So I can eat it. I can make a coffee substitute out of it. I can use it for medicine. And I can make wine with it. And it encourages my bees and my pollinators, gets my hives off the ground early if I'm a beekeeper, brings in bees if I'm not a beekeeper, and we want to get rid of it because it doesn't look like a carpet The way that everybody thinks a lawn's supposed to look like. Oh, I almost forgot. It's a dynamic accumulator. Uh, that big long taproot you can never seem to get out, so it always comes back. Think about how far that goes down into the soil. So that goes down, 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 down to these layers of subsoil where there's not really much fertility from a standpoint of organic matter. It's pretty much inert mineral-based subsoil. Well, what's it doing down there? Well, it's going down there to get the minerals. And it pulls the minerals up and it uses in its growth cycle and every year it dies and all those leaves go to the ground. And all of those minerals that it's mined deep out of the soil now get put into the ground. When you eat them, they get put into you. When you feed them to your livestock and your livestock craps and you compost the livestock crap and you put it back in, you're recycling the mineral, you're creating the mineral cycle. Right? So it also is a fertility aid. Through dynamic accumulation of minerals deep in the subsoil that most of the plants you're planting that you don't call weeds can't get to. So stop trying to kill it. How about this one? Purslane. Purslane is something that's known much more in the south than the north. It's a, it's a warm weather, hot plant with kind of a succulent nature to it. It's got a little bit of, uh, of that slimy texture similar to okra, but nowhere near as overpowering. Uh, it's considered a weed by some, and it's considered an ornamental plant with different varieties of it by others. Uh, but I plant a variety called Golden Purslane, these little bitty seeds, and it grows wonderfully. And when I first put it in the garden in the backyard in Texas, the next year it started showing up in the front yard. And people are like, what's that? I'm like, it's my food. Right? It tastes great. It's got a little bit of a lemony character to it. It's got a crispness. It'll grow in the, 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 the depths of heat. As long as it gets some decent irrigation, it's going to do well. Um, it goes great in your summer salads with your summer varieties of lettuce in your lamb's quarter or maybe your hosantle leaf, maybe a little bit of amaranth leaf and plantain leaf, right? We put all those together and we've got a great summer salad. Um, and yet, again, people see it as a weed. And I just think purslane is one of the, again, one of the more underrated plants that are out there. Uh, it, it is, uh, it's a, it gets these little yellow flowers on it eventually. It's very, very attractive to the smaller pollinating insects, a lot of the flies and things like that, uh, that, that are very, very beneficial to the overall ecosystem. So that's another one. Now, the next one's not really something you're going to plant in your garden. 
but it's a much maligned plant through most of the United States. It has a huge range. I don't know that I've ever seen it in Texas, but trust me, guys, it's going to grow in Texas very soon because I'm going to freaking plant it there. And it goes all the way up into New England. It's really more of an eastern plant. It's called sumac. And many of you have heard of it before. But it has these big red clusters of berries that form on it, but they're not big juicy berries. They're little hairy hard berries. And if you take one off and you put it in your mouth, it tastes just like, kind of like lemonade. And it's really a lemonade tree. Now, because there's a poison sumac, where I grew up, a lot of people said, don't touch that, it's poisonous, right? And then, you know, you, you go off in like scouting and stuff like that, and you learn that it's actually edible, and you can make lemonade out of it. And you do it, everybody thinks you're going to die, and then they're like, well, you didn't die, so I'll try it. And like, That's really good, right? And it was used a lot by Native Americans for its tartness. It's also basically a vitamin C tree. And it's very easy to grow, very easy to propagate, because it grows all over the place all by itself. You can propagate it from seed, and you can propagate it from cuttings. I'll talk about a new way to do cuttings here in just a minute when I get to the next plant on the list. But sumac's also a beautiful tree. It's got these. It, it's kind of like a crepe myrtle that's useful and doesn't require a bunch of work, but it doesn't quite have those beautiful uh, trunks the way that a crepe myrtle does. But they'll grow into a fairly large tree, 10, 12 feet tall, especially when taken care of and not having to compete with other of their kind and other weeds and stuff around them. They'll be, you know, if you give them a spot as a showcase, they're a beautiful tree. The leaves turn a scarlet red, and you can do staghorn or smooth sumac. Either one of them will do just fine. And you can go out when the leaves are red, or the, 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 uh, the berries are red, and you cut them off, and you put them into some water, and you just kind of stir them around, pour it through a strainer, and sweeten it with either sugar or honey, and you've got pink lemonade. Uh, I've done fish. I just had um, uh, the guy that was on earlier this week uh, from Oleo Acres Farm. He talked about uh, somebody using it with chicken. I'm going to have to try that. It makes me think of lemon chicken. But I've done fish with it, and people all these ways they're going to infuse it and make powder out of it. Here's how I do my fish infused with, with sumac. I take a sprig of sumac. I take a whole fish, gutted, head, tail still on, just gutted, and I take the piece of sumac, I stick it in the fish's cavity, right? And then I put a little bit of butter on top of the fish, maybe a little bit of dill, a little salt, a little pepper, a little salt and pepper on the inside of the fish too. I roll that up in foil, I cook it on the grill. And once the flesh is flaky, the skin peels off, that type of thing, it's done. And that lemon flavor from the sumac just cooks into the fish. Especially if you give it a flip or two while you're doing it. It mixes with the butter, it's, it's awesome. And there's no real work to it at all. But yet people hack it down, try to get rid of it, try to kill it. And it's this tree that's saying, I have so much to offer you. I have beauty. Uh, I am good for wildlife. I provide bird habitat. I provide you vitamin C. I provide you a substitute for lemons. And I don't know if you've checked, but it's kind of hard to grow lemons in most of the United States. Uh, and I store well because you can take these berries and let them dry. And if you put them away dry, they, they will still give you an awful lot of flavor uh, once they're dried out. Uh, you can leave the dadgone things on the on the tree in in most of the south, and when they dry out on the tree, and you can go out, you know, two three months after they dried, cut them off, and still get a lot of flavor because that absorbic it's 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 pure absorbic acid that's in the hairs on these berries, and that absorbic acid is vitamin C. You know, like your kids eat these candies and crap like that, like Sour Patch Kids and all, or these sour candies. Do you know how they do that? That's absorbic acid. It's so one way to get them to trick them into eating vitamin C is the sweet, sour stuff with the candies. That's all that it is. So it's pure vitamin C. Now, what else does that mean? 
Um, if you think about like if you want to keep fruit from browning or something like that, you put a, you squeeze a little bit of lemon on them and it keeps your stuff from browning. So if you take a little bit of this and make kind of a concentrated tincture of sumac extract and you use a few drops of that mixed in with some water across like when you cut pears or apples or something like that and they need to you know be cut for a while before you do whatever you're going to do with them you don't want them to brown on you, it does the same thing. So this is where I think that we've just lost touch with freaking reality. People will go out to a store and buy vitamin C tablets and cut down a vitamin C tree. People will go out to a store and buy lemons to squeeze on their fish and cut down a lemon tree. People will go out and buy country thyme lemonade, which is sweetened with high fructose corn syrup, when they could have a lemon tree, lemonade tree in their backyard sweetened with, with you know, natural honey. And which is better for you, which is easier for you, and which costs less? And why cut the tr See, so this is where I'm saying I think we've lost touch. And it brings us to me to another wild plant, and it's going to be where I'm going to drop a technique on you today. That you're, I think a lot of you guys are going to go like, holy crap, is that awesome. Okay, so the plant is the muscadine. And I don't think there's quite the hatred for the muscadine that there is for a lot of the other plants on my list, but... There is a lot of people that see them as growing into their trees or whatever, and they cut them down, and they think they're a terrible thing, and they're going to kill the tree. And Let me just put it to you this way. Long before people were here, trees grew, and muscadines grew. And somehow the trees and the muscadines cooperated with each other. It's almost like they're part of this seven-layer system to the permaculture forest where you have canopy and subcanopy trees, and then climbers are a layer in there. It's almost like... Nature knows what she's doing, so we can stop worrying that the muscadines are going to kill the trees if we're in that group of people. Um, but muscadine is basically a, a native grape to, uh, to North America. They taste great. They make a great wine. They're good for fresh eating. Um, and they, the red muscadines, which really technically all muscadines are red and super nogs are the bronze color ones, but let's let it go. The red ones um, have the highest concentration of something called reverse reversitol uh which you might hear a lot about in the health foods you know world now about anti-aging anti-cancer it's basically a really good antioxidant and i'll tell you before i say anything else i believe that this thing uh reversitol which is you know being called reverse it all is the way they pronounce it on purpose when they talk like reverse it all that's not what it's really called it's spelled r e s v e r a t r o l reverse i i can't even say it right because it's in my head is reverse it all because that's how they market it it is likely being overhyped but it is part of let's say the french paradox where the French eat all of this food that's supposed to be bad for them, but they drink red wine all the time and they have lower incidences of disease, probably lack of stress as well, though they might be pretty stressed soon with the way their economy's headed over there. But it, it clearly has been shown time and time again to have some beneficial effect. And here it is growing on a vine that just continuously self-propagates. Now, the only downside to most wild muscadine that you'll find growing in the forest and trees and all is, one, they will grow 50 foot up a tree, And if there's muscadines up there, they don't do you a hell of a lot of good. Two, because they don't get a lot of fertility or a lot of solar exposure and they're not optimum uh, in their growing patterns when they're in their native habitat, um, they produce grapes but not a ton of them. You might find on a vine 10 or 12 grapes uh, or a piece of a vine 10 or 12 grapes. You might see this huge thing like millions of vines and it's really all off one mother vine. 
But if we take cuttings of these wild muscadines and we plant them into well-cultivated soil and we give them a, a trellis and we prune them the way we would a domesticated muscadine, we get very, very high-yielding performance. If we build ourselves a little muscadine vineyard and we use some cultivated varieties and some wild varieties together, we get cross-pollination, we get a lot more productivity, we get robustness, and we get free plants by cultivating our wild muscadines, which is cool. Now, the thing about a muscadine is, like a lot of grapes, if a vine touches soil, it will put out roots. So one way we can, we can try to cultivate our muscadines is just take a cutting, stick it in the dirt, and sometimes it'll grow. And when it grows, great, but a lot of times it won't make it. It requires a lot of care, a lot of paying attention to in the early stages to get it to root. We can add a little root rooting hormone will help us. Or if we don't have rooting hormone in a bottle and we have willow trees, we can go get willow buds and crush them up. And uh, there's a rooting hormone in the willow bud that will also help our rooting take effect. We can scrape a little bit of uh, bark off the side of the vine when we do that, and we can try that, and it might work. Another way would be we could go out in the forest, find a muscadine vine, dig a hole in the ground, shove part of the vine into the ground, bury that part of it, and leave part of it sticking out the other side, come back later, dig it up, and there'll be roots there. Of course, we'll be disturbing those roots now, and we may or may not successfully transplant it, but it works. If we want to really do it a slick way, though, we can do something called air budding. And I'm going to try air budding sumac, and I bet it works as well. And I'm going to try air budding some other things. But let me tell you what air budding is. Air budding is where basically we put dirt in a container around a vine or a stem of a plant, We wait for it to root, and after it roots, we simply cut it off below the container and then remove it from the container without disturbing the new rooting and then plant it. Well, I've been seeing all different ways that people do this with, you know, wrapping it with a bag, and it just seems like a pain in the ass. So I found this guy on, uh, on YouTube, and he's using two-liter soda bottles for this. I decided to use smaller bottles, like the size that come like 16-ounce water bottles, because uh, I just don't think you need a two-liter bottle. And what you do is you cut the bottom off the bottle, then you put, and I'll put a link to the, the, the video so you can see this. You put a hole down near the bottom where you cut the, 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 the off, so it's in the side of the bottle, if that makes sense. So if you were holding a coffee cup and maybe an inch below the rim of the coffee cup, you stuck your finger there, you put a hole through it like that. Then you take the bottle and you thread it onto your vine. So you put the front of the vine through the bottom of the bottle, and then gently pull it through, and the leaves will come throughout the other side of the, the, you know, the, the bottle's top. And in that hole, you've attached a string. You get it to the part of the vine you want your roots to, to take place, and then you tie the string off to the vine. You fill it with potting soil. You come back in the fall after the vine has gone dormant and the leaves have fallen off. You cut the vine, and it's rooted. You take your dormant plant with some optimum time to, to, to pot it and pot it up or plant it into the place you want it to grow. And then when spring comes, it buds out and starts growing all over again, and you've successfully air-budded the plant. Again, if that doesn't make sense with me describing it, um, when you see the video, it'll make perfect sense. In fact, you probably won't even have to watch the video. As soon as you see the bottle with the string on it, you'll go, ah, I get it. Now, the beauty is that little neck of that bottle, when you fill it with potting soil, the dirt doesn't all come out the other side. And since you're not trying to keep the plant alive, you should probably water them when you first put them on the tree, but you can let rain do the work. You don't have to go back and constantly mess with them. Every once in a while, you can go by with a can of water and put some water in them, but they'll take root uh, because they're just going to add roots, and they're getting their main you know, source of water and nutrient from the subsoil where the mother plant is going in. 
And I've been thinking about, like, uh, there's a plant species that's kind of a bonus for you today called Gumi or Eleganus multiflora, which is a, a, a relative of autumn olive. But unlike autumn olive, it is not considered invasive because it's really hard to propagate. And about the only way to get it to propagate reliably, other than for, you know, and not from seed. Seed takes almost two years to germinate and sometimes never does. But you can propagate it from vine cut, from cuttings. But I've read so many people like, I got 12 cuttings and got one to take. Well, it seems to me that instead of cutting it and putting the cutting into the ground with rooting hormone, you could take an existing one of these trees, put some bottles on it, air bud them out, wait till they take root, cut them free, and that would be a great way to propagate that plant. So I'm kind of jazzed on finding this new technique. And air budding is not a new technique, but using these, these soda bottles uh, or water bottles is a great way to do it. And to me, that's a new technique to me anyway. Um, the next one I have for you today is chicory. We already talked about it, but it's a good green. It's a good wildlife forage. It has a deep tap root like comfrey, like dandelion, so it's a dynamic accumulator. We can roast the root and make a coffee substitute. We can use the green in a salad, and people look at it all the time and call it a weed. It just doesn't make sense to me, and I bought a big old bag of chicory seed, and I go out all the time whenever it rains and just sprinkle some of it here and there all over the place. Uh, the more of I can get growing in like the, to like pasture mixes and stuff like that, the better. I will probably put, you know, 20, 30 pounds of chicory seed on the ground when we get our place eventually in Texas, uh, our bigger farm type place. And then the last one, uh, on my weed list, and I guess this is going to be a long show today, but, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and do it and give you all the rest of them instead of breaking it into two parts. Uh, but my last one on the weed list is plantain. And I won't say too much about that because I think that's one that a lot of people, you know, as soon as you start uh, foraging and learning to forage, it's easy to identify. Uh, it tastes pretty good. It's a good, it's a good uh, leaf crop and a good seed crop. The seeds of plantain is a good protein source. Something good, again, to mix into breads or cakes or things like that to beef up the protein content. But what I think a lot of people don't know there's a very good medicinal quality to plantain. It's very good at drawing infections out of wounds and, and preventing wounds from becoming infected. I remember when I was a little kid, my grandfather cut his finger. It wasn't a bad cut, but it was a fairly decent cut on his, uh, his left index finger. And I remember he showed me the plants, and he would wrap the leaves around the cut, and then he put a Band-Aid over top of the leaves to hold the leaves in place. And the cut you know, never got infected, and it, it healed very, very quickly. And he said his father taught him that. Uh, you know, probably around 1900 or something like that. And that, to me, is something that was handed down through my family, that there's this medicinal quality to plantain as well. Uh, so I've actually, you know, encouraged plantain to grow. Whenever I see it somewhere, especially when it's ready to go to seed, I'll get seed from it, and I'll, I'll take it home, and I'll, you know, spread it out. And then people, you're spreading weeds, and it's not a weed. If I can eat it, if it performs a useful function, and if it doesn't overcompete with things that I'm trying to grow intentionally, I don't consider it a weed. So there's my list of weeds. Now I'm going to go off into a list of things I'm just going to say that you probably won't find in the average backyard. Most people don't consider most of these things weeds. Some of them you may never have even heard of before, but I like to bring things to the audience that, that are new to them. The first one, though, most of you, if you've listened to the show for any length of time or have gotten into the kind of green movement, all it's, it's kind of made a real renaissance, so you'll probably be like, nah, it's not that big a deal, but it's amaranth. But I think that amaranth is largely underestimated for its potential for what it can do for us. We can grow varieties of amaranth like Golden Giant. Golden Giant will put this huge seed head and a couple small seed heads onto the top of this plant. It'll grow seven, eight feet, nine feet tall maybe. And you'll get about a pound of seed out of one plant. 
Now that plant also produces a tremendous amount of organic matter. So it's a good soil builder when we compost it back down. But the leaves are relished by goats and cattle. They'll eat and hogs will eat it too. The seed heads, even if we don't want to like, you know, grind amaranth or use the amaranth grain, and there's so many varieties of amaranth. There's varieties of amaranth that basically you can pop like pop like mini popcorn and has this really great kind of nutty taste when you do that to it. But if you're keeping chickens, man, grow some amaranth. It's a it's a pro it's like protein power for the chickens. So just by growing, let's say, 20 golden amaranth plants spaced out, they can go along your fence line or whatever. And you don't have to get real fancy for chickens, right? When the heads are ready, you just cut them off and throw them in a, in a paper bag. And, you know, taking a couple handfuls of the seed heads and giving them to your chickens every couple, you know, every couple days or so until you run out, what a protein boost for them. And they'll love it. And they'll do all the work of picking it out. And they'll convert it into high quality, you know, protein in the form of meat or eggs or both. So I've got a plant now that I can feed to my goats or my cattle or my hogs plus my chickens. If I want to pull the grain out, it's a great grain for me to eat. The shoots of it, the young plants and the shoots of it, are actually a really good green, though some varieties are better than others. Golden Giant, I'm not really fond of eating the green part of the plant at all. It's To me, it's too tough, even when it's young. Uh, unless you, I mean, a lot of times what I'll do with it, though, is I'll seed it like crazy. And I'll have to thin a lot of it out. And if you pick it when the, when the whole plant is maybe four to six inches tall, it's pretty good then. But once it gets any kind of real shape and, and form to it, the leaves are just too tough. But the variety I like the most to grow as a combination for both what I can get out of the leaves and out of the seed is a, a variety called Hopi Red Dye. And as the name would lead you to believe that the red coloring can actually be used as a dye. So we've got that going for it, though I've never really done that with it. But when you pick the leaves off and they're this deep crimson red and you use them in a salad or a stir fry, they bring a depth to it. They bring a great flavor to it as well. But, you know, you think about a salad. If it's just plain green, it's one thing. But if there's a little bit of tomato in there and some yellow pepper and these bright red leaves and then some deep green leaves and some light green leaf and a little sprinkling of, you know, white cheese on top of it, and maybe some toasted sunflower or pepper uh, or a pumpkin seed or something like that on the top for some crunch, and then dress it. It looks good, and when things look good, we're just more likely to really enjoy eating them. It's part of our biochemistry. So uh, amaranth is a big one. I won't go any deeper into it today, though, because, again, we're going to go long into I think a lot of you know about it. Now, there's another one I got for you today. Uh, that we've talked about on the show with some interviews and stuff like that before, but I've never gone deeply into, and it's called scarret. Now, if you if you looked at a scarret plant yanked up out of the ground in its second year, you would think that either like a parsnip or a, a white carrot had been infected with some kind of nuclear radiation and gone freaking crazy. It's like a billion little roots about as big around as your your bigger, you know, like your index finger, all different lengths and twisted and going all different directions. But it's actually a really good plant. It kind of does have like a parsnip carrot-like flavor to it. And it's something you really don't want to start harvesting until its second year. But once you do that, basically you yank it out of the ground, pull a few pieces of it off and stick it back in the ground. And it keeps going over and over and over and over and over again. So you don't have to replant it. Some of the bigger ones, the, the core, like if you've ever cut a carrot, you can look and you see the kind of an outer, outer thing and a core. The core is smaller. So like one that would be the size of your thumb might have a core uh, a little bit smaller than a number two pencil. Sometimes that core kind of gets hard and woody. 
But when you're eating it, you just basically like pull the outer, it just comes right off. Like the outer part comes right off. So it's kind of like, kind of like eating like a, a weird shaped chicken leg or something like that. But it's a very good high uh, mineral plant. It's also, because of the deep roots, it's also a dynamic accumulator. And the, the green part of it actually brings up a lot of things to the surface. It's also very pest resistant, and its flowers are extremely attractive to beneficial insects. This is a plant that the only reason that it's not really cultivated heavily is because of the modern concept of food. Modern food is supposed to look a certain way, smell a certain way, feel a certain way, and not require you to do anything other than shove it in your beak and then move your beak up and down and make swallowing motions. This, you kind of have to clean it because there's so many different roots. It gets dirt everywhere, so you got to give it a good cleaning. And you got to cut it up, and then you got to cook it. And then sometimes when you're eating it, you got to pull these woody cores out of it, which really isn't that big a deal, especially since it tasted that gone good, and it grows by itself all the time. But in the 1800s, this stuff was grown everywhere. In, in the colonial United States, all over Europe, this was, a, this was a mainstream vegetable of the time. Because it required so little work, so little effort, it did so many great things. So that's another one you might want to check out. Again, it's called Skirret, S-K-I-R-R-E-T, S-K-I-R-R-E-T. Don't worry, there is a list with the show notes, and I will put links to seeds for just about everything I talk about today as well, uh, if seeds are available for them. Moving on to the next one on my list I'm going to talk about, you've probably seen in seed catalogs, if you like to browse seed catalogs or things like that, you probably thought, ah, that's kind of cool, but I don't really see the point, because... You know, I mean, it's a big plant, and it, it's just for like a novelty thing. And it's birdhouse gourd, or sometimes it's called bottle gourd, and they're basically the same plant. And it's this gourd that kind of looks like a bottle, and you can let it grow until it's full grown, and it kind of hollows itself out once it's full grown and turns hard, and you can cut a hole in it and shellac it and put it up as a birdhouse, or... You can cut the top off and, and basically do the same thing and make it into like this cool-shaped bottle. And that's why they call it bottle gourd or birdhouse gourd. What most people don't know, though, is this stuff is eaten like crazy in India. It's, it's commonly curried, and it's pretty dadgone good. You just got to pick it when it's really small. So you want to pick it when it's about, I don't know, about four inches, five inches long, And then you can cut it up, and it's really a, a pretty decent vegetable to curry if you like vegetable curries, or to add to a curry with other with meats and things if you like to curry meats, which I do. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be curried. That's just a common way that it's done. So I put it in there one because it is edible, and uh, I think that that's that's kind of a, a, an interesting thing that we could have this thing we're growing for a novelty, but if it's necessary, we can eat it, and that's. That's got an advantage from a sustainability standpoint. But the other thing is, growing your own containers is actually kind of cool. And being able to use these boards, these gourds as bottles or canteens or things like that in a collapse environment would actually be very, very beneficial, would it not? I, I didn't include it in my list today, but you could add another thing like Lufa gourd to this because Lufas can be used for sponges, but let's stick to containers and I'll just throw that in as another bonus. But so we've got that ability to grow containers. The birdhouse thing's not a bad thing either, though, is it? I mean, one of the things that we need to be doing from a sustainability standpoint is encouraging as much wildlife as we can. So we can take boards and pieces of wood and thing like things like that from the store that somebody cut a tree down for. We could spend a lot of energy sawing it, cutting it, piecing it together, nailing it together, and then putting it in a tree somewhere. Which, And if you like to build birdhouses, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not putting you down. It's just there's a, quite a bit of energy 
and a quite a bit of resources that go into making that little house for that little bird that may or may not show up. Or we can plant a few seeds and get a buttload of these things, dry them out, core one hole in them, give them a coating of a preservative, hang them up in a tree, put them up on a pole, do whatever we want, create all this habitat with almost no effort whatsoever. And if you've never grown one of these things, give it some space. Like plant, plant this like in the end of the garden and then like just train the vines out onto a fence or down through the yard or something like that. I've got one right now. Did the vine has to be 20 feet long? And now it's sending out side runners that are growing about a foot a day. Uh, I've got this stuff, it's just going crazy all over the one place that I planted it. And even though it's like a, you know, the squ kind of squash family type of thing and it looks a lot like a squash, the squash bugs and the squash vine borers don't touch it. So we can create kind of a, a summer squash curry type thing we can use for stir fries and curries with the young uh, fruit, and we can let some of it mature to use as either containers or bottles, and I don't think most people ever really consider planting birdhouse gourd uh, as anything other than a, you know once in a while as a novelty thing. The next one is bushel gourd. If we're going to grow containers, why not grow some big containers? Now, when I say big, I mean big. A big bushel gourd can weigh as much as 100 pounds while it's growing. And uh, it can be as much as five feet in diameter, though that's kind of the exceptional one. But they call them bushel gourd because they'll often grow up to the size of a bushel basket. And we can cut the top off, dry it out, preserve it, and we've got a, basically bushel baskets that we can grow. We don't have to weave, right? It can be watertight. Um, I, I just, you know, I think it's something that we need to maybe think about when we think about a sustainability standpoint. How many times do we have a need to put stuff in something? And, and we're relying on things like a Tupperware basket or something like that. And here's a way to grow these things. And is it something we all need to do right now? No. But it might be something we want to make part of our seed stock and do once in a while and learn from and Just get the cool factor out of it. Because if we ever need to rely on something like that, if we ever need to really rebuild things, I mean, the ability to grow containers, canteens, baskets, and stuff like that, uh, from plants that are very, very uh, unneeding of our care. I mean, these are very tough, hardy plants that, that do very well without a lot of upkeep and care. And the fact that some of them can also produce food in the interim is really awesome. So I think gourds are a place we could probably, and I definitely I could learn more about. I have never grown the bushel gourds. I have grown the birdhouse gourds. I'm growing them again this year. I'll grow some of the bushels next year. And I'm going to look more into it. I think it's another place that we, because we're so focused on tomatoes and peppers and stuff like that, that we kind of ignore the, 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 the cool things we can do with, with nature and let nature be the architect for us of some of our products. Uh, not everything we grow needs to be something we eat, which leads me to my next one, which is millet. Millet is the easiest grain I've ever grown in my life. The first time I grew millet, it was completely by accident. Uh, I was a kid, and we had this place that we used to feed the birds, and these doves and quail and everything would come up. It was where my grandparents had built a new house, and before like the whole neighborhood developed, it basically backed up to this woods and a swamp behind it, and um, I had this little patch. And I would go out there every day and throw bird seed on the ground. And the birds would come in, especially the quail were cool to watch come in and eat it. Well, they would only eat so much seed. I was a kid, so I'd throw a lot of seed down. And all of a sudden, some of the seed would start growing. I mean, you had the rainy, humid weather of a Florida spring. 
Uh, I had my grandfather watering the lawn and constantly watering the area the birds were in. You had the birds constantly coming there, crapping, increasing the fertility of soil. It was natural that it was going to grow, so I let it grow. And I like until the grandfather was the big weed eater, lawnmower guy too. Hey, can you leave this be? And he was happy to do it for you know his grandson. And you know all of a sudden these 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 grass things grew over a foot tall and these seed heads formed on them. And I realized it was the millet seed. And you just let it grow till it was dry and cut it down and throw it right there and the birds ate it again. And some of it would grow back and it grew back over and over again through a single season. Well, millet seed's cheap. It's actually a pretty good grain for people to eat, but hauling it is a pain in the ass. Um, so if you're going to grow it for yourself, hauling it, I mean, you have to be hungry and really desperate to go through the crap that it takes to haul millet uh, by a manual process. And I guess parts of the world, people do it. Uh, but it's not something I want to be doing. But doves and chickens love it. So it's a great feed crop. It's also a good crop to encourage if you have a few acres and you plant some millet, you're going to have a lot of doves showing up. So it's a good wildlife encouragement crop. So that's another one that I wanted to throw in today. Another one I wanted to talk about today is perilla leaf. Um, I first heard about this stuff by watching a show called Luke's Vietnam, and it seemed like every time he was cooking something, he was putting, you know, Vietnamese mint, perilla leaf, and all this other stuff, and, you know, Vietnamese coriander and what all into it. Well, then a listener who's also Vietnamese that lives somewhere in the Carolinas, I don't remember if it's North or South Carolina, I think it's one of the Carolinas, and he sent me a huge box of seeds. Uh, and he said, like, I wanted to, you know, get a discount on the MSB. And, like, he sent me so many seeds and so much cool stuff. I gave him, like, two years for free. Um, but one, there was a bag of the perilla leaf seed. And I'm growing it now, and it's kind of like, sort of like a mint look to it, but it doesn't really taste like it. It's got a little bit of an anise. It's awesome stuff, and it's a great summer green. And you can find seeds for it all over the place. Uh, it's easy to grow, and it's something that not everybody has. Next one on my list today is called perennial onion, and there's two main kinds of perennial onions. One are walking, and the other one are called multiplier. So a walking onion, Egyptian walking onion being the most famous, is an onion that grows, and then the top forms little onions, and they start to sprout, and then they get so heavy that the stalk falls over, and they hit the ground, and when they hit the ground, they, they root, and they start growing again, and then they do it again, and again, and again. You can set a little onion patch aside, Put a few of these walking onions in there and get it going, and then selectively harvest so you're always leaving some behind. You can harvest some of the greens, you can harvest the bulbs, and you can pretty much have onions for the rest of your life out of one little patch. If you use a lot of onions, you need a bigger patch. The other kind, which actually are uh, a lot of people tend to, I think, like them a little bit better uh, from a standpoint of you know uh, just the onion taste or quality or or familiarity of the onion. Uh, are what are called multiplier onions. And there's actually various varieties of these, and some will only get about as big around as your thumb, and they're more like a bunching onion. And some will get, you know, two, three inches in diameter, and like exceptional ones will get out to four. Probably the best one for growing larger onions is, is a variety called yellow potato onion. It's also known as hill, mother, or pregnant onion. And they pretty much do every do well everywhere in the United States unless you go like too far into South Texas or too far into Southern Florida where it's too hot. And basically, what happens is you plant one, and then it just like like buds out almost like potatoes. Like it just like one becomes like six or seven. And when you dig them up, you take what you want and just throw the rest back in the round. They keep multiplying. That's so why they call them a multiplier onion. 
So one patch of these can also keep you in onions for kind of the rest of your life. They just continuously, and what they, they look kind of weird. It's like five or six onions stuck together uh, in one giant mob, and you pull it up, and you put a couple back in the ground and take what you need. It's kind of like the way that daylilies multiply. If you've ever worked with daylily bulbs, you can pull them up, and the, where there was one bulb, now there's six or seven, and you pull them apart, stick them back in, and now you have more, and then they do it again, and then they do it again, and they do it again. You know, kind of like the, you know, you tell people, two people, and they tell two people, and they tell two people, and it expands. That's how these things work. So perennial onion. There's also perennial leeks. They're not on my list today, but I'll throw that in as a bonus, that there are perennial leeks that work kind of the same way. And uh, I'll, put a, uh, I'll put a link to uh, a source for perennial leeks on today's show notes for you as well. And uh, leeks are, for those that don't know, maybe like a mild onion sort of kind of. They're in the same family. The next one I put on my list for things that are probably not in the average backyard or garden is buckwheat. Um, buckwheat's done a lot for me. I said earlier in the interview that I had with the guy from Oleo Acres that one of the things it's done for me is where I was smart enough to plant it around my gardens, I'm not having as much problem with the deer. There's this big, huge belt of buckwheat, and the deer come along the edge. They don't really like to go through the middle of your yard. I guess in certain high-pressure areas they would, but where they're wary and there's dogs around and stuff, they're like, I kind of want to sneak by. right? So there's this big belt of buckwheat, and they eat the tops off the buckwheat and all, and I really don't care. So it's done that for me. But I also have just this massive amount of pollinators and beneficial insects this year, part from the polyculture, but a big part of it is all this buckwheat at various stages because once it starts to go to seed in one area, I throw a whole bunch of seed on the ground in another area and always have it. And, you know, you walk out in my garden in the morning and you stand there and you just hear buzzing and humming. I mean, unless the wind's blowing when it's quiet, you can just hear hundreds and hundreds of these buzzing and humming insects. Well, those guys are not a lot of uh, uh, pest insects. There's a lot of pollinators and predators in that little buzz. Little wasps and little little chicana wasps and uh, little bees and little uh, predator flies and lacewings and stuff. It's just, it's just like a cornucopia of these things from the buckwheat. And, you know, we talk, we had Phil Chandler on this week, too, about the bees, and we need bees around. And there's there's very few things that bees really seem to relish the way they do uh, a few, few different plants. Buckwheat, white clover, and sunflowers. So I, I think buckwheat, and it's so easy to grow. Uh, you pretty much throw it on the ground, and it grows. It is a grain. We can use it that way, uh, but it's kind of a pain in the butt to hold. Now, there's you can do it. The, the easiest way, if you want buckwheat for flour, is get yourself a good blender, throw in a few handfuls of it, pulse the crap out of it till it starts to break up, and then take a, 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 a thin mesh like wire uh, colander and sift it. And what will happen is as the kernels come out, they'll get shattered, and they'll sift through as flour, and the holes will separate. You'll lose some that way, but if you want to try it, you can do it that way. You can get some uh, buckwheat flour. It makes great pancakes, and it can uh, it's gluten-free, and it, it has some uses that way. But I grow it primarily for deer bait, uh, if you want to call it that, or deer trap crop, uh, and for what it will do as far as bringing in beneficial insects. And then the other side of it is chickens like buckwheat. So they'll eat the small buckwheat greens, and they'll eat buckwheat seed. Well, I don't have to worry about it being hard to hold for the chickens. All I have to do is when it all starts to get to the point where uh, it's going to seed, is turn the chickens loose, and, and they'll take care of it for themselves. So it's another source of fodder for your chickens, fodder for your bees. And then you have this huge mass of organic matter, 
And buckwheat straw can be fed to your, your animals like goats. They can eat buckwheat straw. It's not good for it to make up more than, let's say, about 10 to 15% of their total diet, but it's supplemental feed or it's great organic matter to either till into the surface level of the soil or just lay down as mulch and let it compost itself back into the soil. So it, it has a lot going for it as well. And we don't have to have a big farm to grow on some buckwheat. Uh, I've got it all over the place on a little half acre of land that I'm playing with right now. Another one that I'm growing right in with the buckwheat. And what's, see, this is what I like about this. I don't have to tie up my garden beds to do this. When I threw the buckwheat on the ground, I threw down cow peas with it. Red cow pea in my instance. You could use purple holes, black eyed peas, any, any kind of cow pea. And all I did was I threw it down, and everywhere I threw it, I took uh, a shovel full of compost and just kind of did just enough compost on top of where I threw it on the ground to cover it. You probably don't even need to do that, but it really worked well. So now as the buckwheat's reaching a stage where it's going to seed, the seed heads are shattering, it's available for the birds and what have you to eat, and it's kind of you know giving up the ghost, so to speak. Now the cowpeas have kind of crawled up there, and they're taking over. Now I get a cowpea yield. Now I like to eat cowpeas, a lot of people don't, but... Uh, most of us in the South, we like our cow peas, our black eyed peas, our purple hole, you name it, right? We, we like them. They all taste about the same. So I get this yield that I'm not really using garden space for. And then I get all the leaf and pods that can be used as organic matter back to the soil. And I really didn't have to do anything other than get this stuff. And all I did was get a big bowl. And I got my, my seed from, uh, from a uh, high mowing organic seed is where I, or Peaceful Valley. I'm, that's, that's where I usually buy my cover crops from. It's Peaceful Valley. And, uh, which is at groworganic.com. And I, you know, take my big bag of buckwheat, which is like two bucks a pound or a dollar eighty a pound or something like that. And you put, you know, put a big pile of buckwheat in there. And then you take your cowpea and put about an equal amount of that. And, uh, you, you can use an inoculant with the cowpeas, but I haven't found that they really seem to need it. And then I mix it up and I just go out and scatter it around and then give it a little coating of compost on top of it, water it in. And next thing you know, off it goes to the races. And so I'm getting two things out of one space that would be previously unused property. And, you know, we don't need to have everything be, a, a, you know, a lawn and, and manicured and, and what have you. And then the cowpeas, of course, as they start to mature, they put these purple flowers on, and they start to provide another flower source as the buckwheat is beginning to go to seed. So it, it just kind of all works together that way. The last one I have for you today, I've talked about before, but I'm going to talk to you about it again, and I think it's really a, a, a big thing that many of us, especially in the southern states, need to look at growing. And they're called temporary beans. Uh, temporary beans are hugely, hugely high in nutrition, and they have quite a bit more protein than something like a pinto bean. In fact, uh, the protein content of a temporary bean... Uh, can often be north of 30%. So that's as much as a third more protein, you know, per ounce or per serving than, than other beans like pintos or what have you. Um, but what's really kind of made them kind of make a comeback is their flavor. They don't taste like a normal bean, I guess, or an average bean. They're kind of a nutty, sweet flavor, and they have like a creamy texture. A lot of high-end chefs are using them now. Uh, and they're, uh, they're just an awesome bean. Uh, the, the other thing is they're very drought tolerant. They're actually native to the desert southwest. They're a desert plant. And I want to talk a little bit before I go into kind of more on this about what drought tolerant, drought resistant means. Because I know that some people's expectations are completely backwards and they get very disappointed when they hear this term. And here's what people think. Okay, it's drought tolerant. So I'll take the seeds. 
and I'll go take this dry, crumbly, sandy soil that has not an ounce of moisture in it. I'll stick them in there and they'll grow. That's, that's not what drought tolerant or drought resistant means. Not at all. Um, for instance, temporary beans, a traditional method of farming them, and they believe the farming of this bean goes back about 8,000 years uh, by native peoples in the southwestern United States would be you get this big field and you kind of build like, like a, a dike dam type architecture around it. And you create channels up in the hills. And when it rains and you have rock hills and the rain falls on a rock hill, you get a hundred percent runoff. That's why a lot of times if you go out into like the desert and you find a, a big rock dome, right? And then it comes down below that dome and it turns into sand and soil and whatever. You'll see that that area below that dome is really green. There's actually uh, traditional permaculture methods of harvesting that runoff, very similar to what I'm talking about here, but more of an old world Arabic type of thing. Where, but you'll see it natural. Uh, I saw it when I was out uh, at uh, uh, Big Bend National Park. I found places where you see exactly this: this big rocky area, uh, hard rock dome, or you know, roll rock or whatever. And then right beneath it, you've got like this kind of meadow area with cacti and different plants and all growing. Well, that's again because 100% of the water that hits a rock runs off it. And it begins to accumulate wherever the soil is below that rock. So they would, in these deserts, look for these areas and channel the water. And when it would rain, channel into this big flat field that they had created and saturate that. And then plant the beans. Or plant the beans and then saturate it. I'm not sure which which way they did it. It would actually seem to me make more sense to saturate it uh, first and then plant. But maybe it works the other way. Kind of like a rice paddy. Except unlike a rice paddy, it doesn't hold the water. The water sinks into the soil. Now the seeds germinate, and they get established, and they put down their root system, and then they're able to mine the deep moisture. And by the time it becomes really, really arid, a couple things have happened. One, they've gotten very well established. Two, they have natural defense mechanisms to enable them to get through dry periods where other plants would fail. And three, they complete their life cycle rapidly. Chickweed that I talked about in the beginning in the weed section kind of does the same thing. Chickweed would not be very drought tolerant, but it's almost completely drought agnostic is a way to look at it. It only grows in the part of the year where the freaking rain is always the spring is when it rains. It grows in the cool season when there's a lot, and even if there's not a lot of rain in the spring since it's cool, you have a lot less evaporation, so a lot more moisture remains in the ground for a lot longer. So it adapts. Part of its adaptation is its life cycle. So temporary beans mature relatively quickly. So what that means is if we get them into a place with good water infiltration, they're able to get through the dry period and complete their life cycle so we can get a harvest. And a lot of things that are drought tolerant, drought resistant, that's what it means. It doesn't mean that you can stick it into a pile of dry sand then it's going to grow. Or that it can get no irrigation whatsoever in the hottest part of the year and it'll be okay. It means that when established properly, it will do well with minimal to no irrigation depending on the environment. That's what a temporary bean does. But there are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of varieties of these things. Last year I got one little packet and I planted them in my bag garden. And they did okay. But even there, like their drought tolerance was pushed the limit because you've got to keep water in those things. But I got enough for a little handful of seeds instead of a little packet full of seeds. And then this year I took that handful of seeds and I planted them into uh, most of a 4 by 10 foot bed in my culture beds. And I planted them when it was still moist from the spring. And they started to grow. 
And then my who culture beds this year, and I'm not going to go deep into who culture. You can look it up and see what it is. But I grew six, put in six who culture beds last year, wood buried underneath the, these beds uh, to hold the moisture in. I said, let me see what they'll do. And in May, we got a half inch of rain, and I did not water once in May. Everything survived, and my, my cucumbers began to taste very, very bitter. And I thought, okay, I've proven it works, and we're going to get into the let's, – let's see what happens when we water a hugu culture bed. So I put two uh, sprinklers, you know, the, com the ones that just go back and forth, uh, between uh, the six beds so that they would water one to the rear and two to the front and put a Y valve in so I could water all six beds just by turning a couple of valves and ran a hose up there. And I turn one on for about 15 minutes and turn it off, turn the other one on about 15 minutes and turn it off, and I water about every other day. Everything went freaking nuts. I've got watermelons growing 10 feet out of the beds, watermelons laying all over the ground. I've got cantaloupes doing the same thing. I've got sorghum that's already like five foot tall. I've got corn that I'm just getting close to being able to harvest. It's a very old blue Indian corn. But uh, the peppers are nuts, three feet tall pepper plants, two and a half foot tall jalapeno peppers. I'm getting a dozen, two dozen peppers a day off. They went crazy. So what I've added, here's another bonus for today. Hugo culture isn't just so you don't have to water, but my God, does it improve the efficiency of watering. Uh, additionally, like kind of on that note, when I had, I had very beautiful garden beds down in, in Texas, and the soil I worked on for five years, and it was amazing soil. There were parts where you could shove your hand into it up to your elbow, and, and, and it was just beautifully crumbly black soil. But even there, in the middle of the day, the plants would look stressed, They would all be wilty and unhappy and what have you. And I would often have to go out in the middle of the day and kind of just wet all the soil down to help the plants get through the day. It was so hot. And even if the soil felt a little bit moist, it wasn't cool. It was basically so hot it would try to cook the dadgone things. Even under, you know, three, four inches of wood mulch, it was just not enough. These hugo culture beds, these plants don't look stressed. I can skip a day of watering. They don't, they don't even care. It's, it's amazing what it does. So into this mix, I plant this temporary bean, which is already drought tolerant. They're a jungle. They're not even known as like a vining bean. They're more like a ground bean, sort of like a bush bean with like a half runner, a little bit of vining. They're growing four feet up the freaking sorghum plants that are planted in amongst them. I've had to pull them off and even prune back some of them so they don't kill the damn things. And there's little pods everywhere now. I'm going to get a huge yield out of, I'd say it's uh, like it's a four by ten bed, but I think I put on like four foot by eight foot of it into these beans. Um, and I, I'm kind of interested as to what type of a yield we get, but I think this is actually maybe a new cash crop. Um, again, high-end chefs are starting to use these things. They're easy to grow. There isn't a pest that's bothered them except the deer. The deer ate a little bit off the front, and it grew back. Like it didn't like go, oh crap, now I can't grow anymore. It grew back like you prune it, you know, you prune like a perennial and it grows back. Um, so I, I'm pretty jazzed up. I think the harvesting and the, uh, the shelling of them might be a bit manually intensive. Uh, but again, if Indians could do it 8,000 years ago, we can do it today. So I got high protein. I got a really unique flavor. And it's a, the, another thing is like if you, Like beans, but you have digestive issues with them. Temporary beans are much easier to digest, uh, and probably the healthiest bean in the world. So that's kind of your, uh, your anchor point, your finish point today with, uh, with these different plants. So again, just to, to give a recap here of everything that we've covered today, let me read the list off. 
Lamb's Quarters, Wilzontle, Chickweed, Dandelion, Purslane, Sumac, Wild Muscadine, and How to Do Air Budding of Them, Chicory, Plantain, Amaranth, Skirret, Birdhouse Gourd, Bushel Gourd, Millet, Perilla Leaf, Perennial Onions, Buckwheat, Cowpeas, and Temporary Beans. That is a huge, huge show, and hopefully something that you can take away from it that you can grow as a survival crop, as a sustainable crop, to help your livestock, to help your health. Uh, temporary beans, guys, that's the one I want you to give a try to if you've never done it before. Those of you in the south, as long as you give them some good irrigation to get them off the ground, you can probably get a crop in this year still. Uh, I'd say anywhere, you know, uh, the southern Carolinas down and across, you could probably still get a crop out of them this year. And with that, I am going to wrap up today, and hopefully you've learned something today. If you have any questions about this stuff, uh, send me an email or leave a comment. best thing is leave a comment in the show notes in the, in the comment section on the blog. Uh, and if you're thinking, well, why didn't he say this plan or that plan? Because we're at an hour and 15 minutes, and uh, I actually shortened up some of the things I wanted to say because I put too many things in it. So I might do another show very similar to this very soon with a whole bunch more stuff that you've never heard of or never thought of or really didn't under, you know, maybe didn't really know all the benefits thereof. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for